one of the age-old and hard questions of the world is how or um, what gift should I get for the person who has everything, right? So that is a very hard question. What gift do I give to the person who has everything? And I'll say I find it almost impossible to get gifts from my parents because if they need something, what do they go and do? They get it themselves. They're like, my, my parents worked long and hard, and they kind of got to a point where like, hey, if we need something, we'll just go and get it. So they don't have a wish list or anything, but I've discovered the secret. From my mom, the thing that always gets, is always perfect for her gifts, is anything that has pictures of her grandchildren in it. Anything. I can throw it on a notebook, on a tote bag, on like toilet paper even, and she'll love it. And it'll never be touched, but she'll love it. Anything with, her, with pictures of her grandchildren. And my dad, I figured out, my dad loves books. But I'm a pastor, so I have a, a wide stretch of books that I read. So I find a book that he has not read before, and I get that for him. And he's like, wow, this is good. It has to be a good book, too. So that's always for my mom. It's, it's um, pictures. My dad, it's books. But another impossible question that might exist is, how do I pray for a good person? How do I pray for someone who is good? Not just someone whose health and finances and their security is good. You know, like you know, those people, you, you go, hey, what can I pray for? And they're just like, I don't know, my life is pretty good right now. Okay, hey, praise God for that. But how do you pray for a person like that who doesn't have a prayer request? But also people who are like morally good. They're just good people. When you talk to them, they're joyful about everything. They could be in horrible health situations. They're like, you know, the Lord's providing for me. Like, like my body is wasting away, but my soul is ever more encouraged. And you're like, uh, okay, like uh, maybe you should pray for me, right? Um, whether it's a beloved pastor or a missionary or a family member who God just seems to be blessing in them. There are no immediate needs. How should I pray for them? And the answer is actually very simple that Paul gives us. We pray that they may grow more. Like a healthy child who goes to the doctor so that they might get a healthy checkup just to check to see how they're growing. So healthy Christians go to prayer for greater growth. Whether it's spiritual depth, or a reach or ability, like that is the key to pray for, is for growth. And that's what Paul's doing today for the Thessalonians. He is praying for their spiritual growth. Now, we saw in chapter, end of the middle of chapter three, just how much love Paul had for the Thessalonian church. That when he was doing ministry with them, he gave and gave himself towards them. And then at the end of chapter three, we've seen him talk about how excited he was to hear his report of them. And we talked about just these attitudes to have that would grow love for somebody. So if you want to go back and listen to that from last week, if you missed it, but that was the idea, like how do we grow love for people? And we have to think of it the right way. We have to look at what God is doing in their life. We have to rejoice even that there's still work to be done in their lives. They, they need to grow in some ways. Now, Paul prays for them. So uh, if you're taking notes, you can see along there, uh, we are going to pray that the good Christian may grow. 
G-R-O, and I know Chen Brothers, you're gonna be like, hey, where's the W, okay? That is not okay. But there's only three points to the text, so I can't, I can't do a fourth. That would be ruining the passage. So it's just grow without the W, okay? The, the W is silent anyways, but we'll be okay, right? G-R-O. Pray that the good Christian may grow. Read along with me the last three verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The first area to pray is pray for current grievances. Pray for current grievances. And that, that might be the wrong word, but I was looking for a G word. And basically, like, whatever is bothering them at the time. Pray for the problems. Pray for the issues facing them. And the Thessalonians don't really have like a problem. Like we're doing, They just want to see Paul. And Paul wants to see them. And so he prays for their being back together, the, the issue at hand. Now, notice, look down in your Bible at verse 11, who he prays to. Now may, praying, our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct. See that? So there's two groups. There's God our Father and the Lord Jesus. This is, once more, a great Trinitarian proof in the Bible of the unity of Jesus the Son and God the Father. It would be blasphemy, and it is blasphemy for some people pray to, to someone like Mary, the mother of Jesus. That is blasphemy because we only pray to God. Only God hears our prayers. And what's interesting too, you can't tell this in English as much, but that word direct is singular. So it's, I'm praying to them, but one, it will be doing the directing. That makes sense? So this is, there's the the diversity and unity within the Godhead, the plurality of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they're one God. Three separate individuals operating with one will. As there's never any disagreement between the Father and the Son. The, the, the Father is not the ogre of the Old Testament and the Son, Jesus, is the kind and compassionate God of the New Testament. The Son is not more willing to grant our petitions than the Father. Both are indivisibly and perfectly one. He prays to the Father and the Son and, and brings up the issue. Right? He prays that they may be together like they both want. Um, look at verse 10. We pray earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Um, even going back, uh, you know, in verse six, and you long to see us as we long to see you. They want to see each other. And so he's praying, God, may you guide and direct. Now, the, the word there for direct doesn't just mean like guidance, like a map, like, all right, you know, 
go 300 feet and then turn right, as your GPS says. No, th this is the idea of making straight the path. So instead of, instead of someone saying, turn here, it's like, hey, you know what? There's a tree in the way. I'm going to move that tree out of your way. And this makes sense because back in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul said what was keeping him from the Thessalonians was Satan himself. Satan was keeping Paul away. And so the only way to get to them was for God to act. Prayer was necessary. Important, right? And he's praying that God would clear the path and bring them together again. It is good to pray for what has been requested or wanted. And I know this probably isn't our issue as much because we were just giving a bunch of prayer requests. But, but sometimes our holier-than-thou attitudes can get in the way where we think, oh, why? I don't want to pray for such earthly things. I've heard people say that, too. And we know 4th of July is tomorrow, right? And it's a time for cookouts, which is all about the meat at the end. It gets on the barbecue, and there could be a fear. Could you imagine showing up to a cookout with some family or friends, and you're like, there's a bunch of chips out on the table. There's, um, you know, some watermelon sitting out. Maybe there's little popcorn balls and things. You're like, oh, I can't touch any of that, because if I touch any of that, I won't want any meat. I won't want any hamburgers or hot dogs or the brisket. None of that. Of course not. Like, you, you can have some of the snack and then go and eat the main course later, right? That, that is the nature of barbecues. And I think in the same way, we don't want to be so worried about saying, I need to have the deeply spiritual prayers that we don't pray for the immediate needs. It's okay to pray for immediate earthly needs. And the Bible shows this. In 3 John, verse 2, 3 John, verse 2, right at the beginning, John says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This is one of the first sermons I heard from Pastor Yuri. I was actually, I was, even, I was downloading them and listening to them like, oh, what does Pastor Yuri preach like? And he preached on this passage where he brought up that it is good to pray for good health. And I found that very freeing because there was, I had been around some people who were like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to pray for any earthly things. Like God tells us to keep our minds on heaven. And so, you know, you, if you want to pray, like pray about, you know, the soul. And I was like, no, he, he says your soul and your health right next to each other in the same sentence. It is okay and good to pray for the current issue. And the application is very simple from Paul's example. We should pray for prayer requests brought up. When someone has a need or they have a desire, we should pray for that, right? I know it's rocket science, crazy. Um, and it's good. And yet even as Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, but your will be done. We, we can pray, Lord, we want this thing, but God, you take care of the results. Petition prayers are beautiful things that give us an opportunity to thank God for what he answers and also to trust him for our problems, right? Like, it's good to pray for something as simple. Get me where I want to be so that I can be with my family, so that I can encourage them. 
whatever other million things we have for, right? It's okay to pray for safe travels. And one reason this is good is because these prayers bring us together. You know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven. One pastor writes, prayer begins not just by embracing a singular relationship, but relationships, plural. When we're praying for other people, uh, he said, you are the salt of the earth. You shall not swear falsely. You shall love your enemy. But he says here that we pray for ourselves. See, praying by yourself may seem to fall into the category of not impressing others with our many words. Go into your closet, right? But Jesus often prayed with others and he prayed for others in front of them. Our prayers have a way of being used by God to meet the needs of others in our lives. Because notice, Paul isn't just praying for them. He's telling them that he's praying for them. It's okay to tell people, I'm praying for you for this. You've asked for this, I'm praying for you for this. That's an encouragement to the soul and it points our affections back on God who can actually answer that prayer. It's relationships, all of us together. Now, Paul did not just pray for what they wanted though. He didn't just eat the chips and get stuffed and not get to the actual big things. He secondly prayed for progressive righteousness in their life. He prayed for progressive righteousness, saying in verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He wants them to increase, to become more righteous. The theologian Augustus Strong wrote, holiness is the goal of a man's spiritual career. I love that. What is, what is the goal? Like, what is a career goal? What is our goal? He's like, no, for, for a spiritual man, for, for a spiritual career, his whole goal is holiness. And here, one of the key aspects he brings up is love. And what's interesting about praying for love for the Thessalonians is you think if any church had something down, it was the Thessalonians with love. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3 says, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They had a great labor of love. They worked hard at their love. Uh, Chapter 3 verse 6 says that now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. Perhaps most clearly, chapter 4, verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Like, uh, you've been taught by God to love one another. They are a loving people. So much so, it's their reputation. People are like, oh, what's a loving church? The Thessalonian church. They are a loving church. But look at your Bible. 
Look down at this passage again. This is a grammar moment, okay? You need some grammar to think about what the text actually says. He doesn't say, I want you to grow your love. He says, I may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So he's not praying for love. He's praying for them. You is the object of the increasing. God is the one doing the increasing. He's the subject. And love is what we call the indirect object. It is the goal of growing. It's the object of that growth. He wants them to grow as Christians and become more loving. And there's no opposition to be found to be a loving person and needing to grow in love. That makes sense? You could be a very loving person and still need to grow, which includes love. Genuine Christian love is the one thing in the Christian life which cannot be carried to excess. You cannot love too much. You might love in the wrong way. It might be a selfish love, but you cannot love too much. And notice who they were supposed to be loving as well. He says that you may love for one another. This is their fellow Christians. The Bible's full of one another commands, things that they're supposed to do. Uh, one of the greatest verses on Christian love, of course, is found in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 it says, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Now, what wedding do you go to in America that doesn't have that somewhere mentioned? Right? It's constant. But this is not how we think about love. I was Googling, of course, because it's always helpful. And I was like, you know, what's self-help definition of love? And I came upon this about family love. And it said, what is family love? Family love is love bound, is a love bond, I'm sorry, love bond characterized by deep affection, respect, loyalty, and healthy attachment which is based so much on how I feel, right? It's about I feel and I, and, I, and I respect someone. Very little to do with what I do towards someone. And I think we can do the same thing as church. Like, you know, when I love these people, it's people I love being with them. And I just, I just have this sweet affection. I just, I just care about these people. They make me feel so good to be around. It, we can slip into that, can we not? But the Bible doesn't define love this way. It's not how they make me feel. It's what I do to choose when I choose. Sorry. It's what I choose to do when I'm with them, or even when I'm not, for that matter. It's what I choose to think about them, to do with them. See, Christian love is choosing to be patient with the irritating, choosing to be kind with the infuriating, to not be resentful against the hurtful and refusing the delights that the wicked offer. Love is a verb, right? 
It's about honoring those around us. Actually, like in Romans 12.10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. It says compete to show honor. See, Christians, this is great, are not just supposed to try and grow in these virtues. But as we are striving to be more patient, we must ask that God make us like the patient one who is God. The goal here is not just be more loving. The goal is grow to be like Christ, who is loving. Get the distinction? It can be a heavy weight. Like, why are you not a loving person? Versus look and try and be more like God. God is love, after all. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon that says, Grow also in love. Ask that your love may become extended, more intense, more practical, influencing every thought, every word. But he said, a little bit after this, if you do not desire to know God better, then you will not love him. For love always cries nearer, nearer. Absence from Christ is hell, but the presence of Jesus is in heaven. If we want to grow in love, we have to grow closer to God. We have to grow, and that will lead to abounding in love. Make sense? But he doesn't just say, love your fellow Christians, does he? He also says, and for all. Not just Christians, but all people, including those people in the city of Thessalonica who are tempting them. We talked about how Paul was worried that they would be lured away, that they'd be caught on the fish hook, that is, the offers of those around them. And he's saying, I want you to grow in love for all those people, even the ones around you. Paul, writing to the Galatian church, said something very similar. He said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will also reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. So there is a special love that Christians should have towards their disciples, toward other disciples. Like, if we love Christians, like Jesus said, they will know us by our love for one another. John 13. But Jesus also warned in Matthew 5 against a very narrow conception of one's neighbor. You know how dangerous it is? Like, well, who is my neighbor? Said the, the scribe, seeking to defend himself, justify himself. And it is true. Love should look different with different people. You can imagine. I said, I, I love my wife. I love Liz so much. But you know what? I'm, I'm standing in line at Chipotle, and I really love this person who's right in front of me as well. You'd be like, okay, um, those better be different kinds of loves, right? Like that would be incredibly awkward and uncomfortable. Um, and there are different duties depending upon someone's closeness to us. I, I, I can love the people in Ukraine right now, but my duty and the way I can help them is going to be different than the person who is in our church 
versus the person who shows up at the church door asking for benevolence or versus the person who, again, I'm in line with and I just have to love them by just being polite and they're having a hard time figuring out the menu, right? Like different types of responses. Love towards an enemy looks different. In Romans 12, Paul tells us to overcome evil with good by seeking to meet their needs and praying for our enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't mean giving them whatever they want, but it means praying for their blessing. And the key here is to grow in love with all people. Let our love be bigger. But like a lot of things, love can seem very vague, a concept. And so Paul gives them an example. He says, just as we do for you. That's a bold statement. He's like, you need to love everyone like we love you. We talked about those attitudes last week that Paul had for them, that he cared about them. He wanted their growth. And those attitudes will grow love. Those who are trusting God have our needs liberated so that we can meet the needs of others. Of this quote, growth in love is the pathway to holiness and acceptance before God on the day when the Lord returns. See, we need to pray always for people's growth, their spiritual growth overall, and specifically pray for greater love. Martin Luther, the great reformed um, starter, he started the Reformation off, right? In so many ways, he kicked it off by writing his 95 theses on the wall. And he, in those 95 theses, he compared love with indulgences. You will remember the Roman Catholic Church at the time, in the 1500s, literally sold forgiveness. Hey, you're going to go to hell for a little while? Give us some money? You can get 100 years off. Or, you know what? You had a really mean father. He beat you as a child. But you know what? You need, you need to get him. He's going he's to be in, they called it purgatory, but it's like temporary hell for a long time. So give us some money and it'll take some time off his life, right? Like just, just pay us. And Luther was watching this going, this is really bad. And so he famously wrote the 95 theses and put them on the door on the Wittenberg Chapel to kind of begin a discussion and debate, being like, hey guys, let's think about this. And he wrote a couple of them. Let me read just three. Thesis 43. Christians ought to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better work than buying pardons. 44. Because love grows by works of love and man becomes better. But by pardons, man does not grow better, only more free from penalty. 45. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a man in need and passes him by and gives his money for pardons purchases not indulgences of the Pope, but the indignation of God. That's just the desire for growing love got him hatred from a corrupt church. He's saying, who cares about if you get like forgiven, like they give you pardons. Like if you love someone else, your love will grow. That's got to be the goal as a Christian, right? And again, he got hated for that. And that's an extreme example. But 
for all of us, no matter how good a person is, no matter how Christian and godly a person is, you know that we can always pray for them? Grow in Christian likeness. Become more godly and grow in love. I highly recommend printing up the church directory and going through the names and praying for the people. And if you get a pause version, you're like, I don't really know who this is. I don't know what to pray for them. Um, you know what you can do? Pray, Lord, let them grow. Let them see how great you are. Let them understand your love better and let them love other people better. It's also a call to us individually. Do we grow greater in love as a verb and not just as an affection? Do we want to grow? Think about those who you need to grow greater in love. Maybe it's a painful family member who we need to pray that we can see a need in their life to meet, to overcome the evil with good. Or maybe it's a child who drives you mad and you have to be patient with them. Or someone in church who you need to look for something to praise in their life. You need to look for something to honor in them, even when they're not always the most honorable, but love seeks to outdo one another in honor. We need to pray for ourselves. Lord, let me grow in love. And I will act on that. Because, thirdly, Paul does not just pray for the immediate need. He does not just pray for general growth. He prays, third, for ongoing faithfulness. He prays for ongoing faithfulness in verse 13. So that, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul prays for the reason that their hearts may be established. Such a good word. It means fixed firmly. If you think like Bing knows all about putting boats up against docks from all the time Boating, you know, like, like there's a, a good way to firmly tie a boat to a dock and there's a bad way to do it. There's a way where it's going to be loose and as the waves hit, the dock's going to be bouncing back and forth, damaging your boat, damaging the dock, and there's a way to firmly attach it, right? Like that's this idea, firmly fixed. And this is one of the main purposes of the church. This is why we have people gathering multiple times on a Sunday Midweek, because Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 11, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body until we all attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, so that, verse 16, when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Like the church exists, that God has given leaders to the church so that the church may grow. Not just grow, but grow to a place where they're firm, not being tossed to and for by every wind of doctrine. To be, as he says here, established, strong. And this is why he sent Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 2, 
He said, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Same word. Establish there. Establish your hearts. Isn't that interesting? There is no contradiction between prayer and action. Paul prayed for them to be built up, and so he sent Timothy to build them up, and then he keeps praying that they might be built up and established. Prayer is a means God uses and that he works in us to achieve his will. One of my favorite verses on prayer is found in Nehemiah chapter 4, where Nehemiah is attempting to rebuild the city. It's been torn down, and as he's trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, there are a lot of people who aren't happy about it. They don't want Jerusalem to be strong again. They want Jerusalem to tear about, and they're, they're picking at them. They're, they're trying to make them scared. They're trying to get the government to turn against them, and none of it's working. And so finally, they're like, you know what? We're going to come in in the middle of the night, and we are going to destroy all the building they've done. Might kill some people. And they hear about this. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 8, they heard about, they plotted, they heard about this plot together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Verse 9, and we prayed to our God. Let me try it again. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah 4, 9. We prayed to our God and we set a guard. They prayed and they acted. Those go together in the Bible. And so Paul is praying that their hearts may be established and he's working to establish them. Specifically, he wants their hearts to be established in holiness, to be blameless in holiness. That word blameless means someone who's judged acceptable, being a sac- as a sacrificial worship, like, so, like how the animals in the Old Testament had to be spotless without any problem, blameless. Holy is something sanctified for God's special purpose, And very shortly in chapter 4, he is going to get into all sorts of ways that they need to be a holy people. Specifically, dealing with the issue of sexual immorality that is existing in the church. And he's he's kind of like hinting at that now. He's getting into it. He's like, something needs to be addressed here, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute. But I'm praying for this. And he prays for their proper walk in the end of chapter 4 how they need to walk in a lot way worthy and honoring to God. And this, there's a great link between this prayer for love and this prayer for holiness. Again, it says, blameless, sanctified hearts can only grow and bloom in the soil of genuine and abundant love. Love that. Blameless, sanctified hearts can only grow and bloom in the soil of genuine and abundant love. This is the teachings of Jesus. It said the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be holy? Then love your neighbor as yourself. And this holiness needs to last. He says, in holiness, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
in chapter 4, you might see in your Bible, a little bit later, right above verse 13, there's this coming of the Lord section. And we learn that one of the areas that they needed to have their faith built up in, one area that the Thessalonian church was lacking in, is understanding eschatology. And we're not going to answer all the questions tonight, because that's what chapter 4 is, is there for. But they needed to grow in understanding eschatology, Jesus' return, because of their current lives and holiness needed. And he's starting to talk about these things, that these, this coming resurrection, this return of Christ is important. He's talking about the day that Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, he says, We make it our aim to please Jesus, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, when Jesus returns, there's going to be a judgment, the Bema seat judgment we talk about, where he either condemns us and says, you did not do well, but you know what? You're still saved. Or he rewards us. Or he judges the unbelievers who do not believe that Jesus is the only way to pay for the wrong things they have done, the wrong thoughts they have thought, the wrong desires that they have had, when they've tried to live their own life and be righteous in their own, or they've, or they've done things that they should be ashamed of, and they try to cover them up, and Jesus will judge on that day. So how can the people be ready, not just for Jesus, but for the saints coming along with him? Notice he's at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. Some people think the saints means it's the word holy ones. So maybe it means angels coming along with him. But it's likely a reference to the fact that the Bible says that Christians come back with Jesus in judgment. In Revelation 19, very near the end of the story, Revelation 19, verse 13 through 15 says, Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This group of people is composed of, according to verse 8, the church. In Revelation 7, verse 13, the tribulation saints are a part of this. In Jude 14, we learn that the Old Testament believers are part of this group, and they come not to assist Jesus in battle because they have no weapons. Only Jesus has a weapon, his words. They come to watch the battle and to reign along with him. See, Paul here is referring the final victory before the millennium, which would include all the saints. And his specific point isn't to give a total timeline, but he's saying, I am praying that you might continue strong until the end. Because these people might not last until that point. They, they actually haven't. Jesus hasn't come back, and all the people who originally got this letter are dead now. His point is just to say, I am praying that you last. 
We need to pray for people to continue to be faithful. We often ask, like, what would it mean? What does it mean to be found faithful when Christ returns? And there's, it's a good motivation for holiness, right? Like, you know, I, I don't want to be found sinning when Jesus shows up. But I believe sometimes we can get hyper-spiritual and we're like, oh man, the I, I, only thing I want to be found doing is, is evangelizing someone, telling someone about Jesus who does not know him. I want to be found singing hymns. I want to be found discipling my children. I want to be found serving in the church. Those are all good things. But I love this quote, this little story. A Puritan pastor named John Carter was once going around, he was visiting people, and he visited a tanner who was tanning hides. That was his job. And he was humbly working hard, and Pastor Carter walks up next to him, taps him on the shoulder, and the man, startled, looks at him and with a blushing face says, Sir, I am ashamed that you have found me thus. Carter replies, Let Christ, when he comes, find me so doing. What, replied the tanner, doing this? And Carter answered, yes, we are both faithfully performing the duties of our callings. He's like, we are both doing exactly what we should be. May Jesus find us in this moment. The prayer of a Christian is to be wholly serving the Lord and whatever he is doing, if the Lord may return now, tomorrow, whenever. And Perhaps one application of this prayer is to deal with a doctrine. To answer the question, is it possible to live perfectly sinless in this life? And the answer, of course, is no. Because he, he doesn't pray here that you might be sinless, does he? He prays you might be blameless in holiness. That means that when they do sin, they would do what God required of them, which is to confess our sin and to believe in the one who is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What makes us holy is not the lack of sin, but the casting off of the blame onto Christ. Old Testament was full of sinners. Moses was not able to go into the promised land because he sinned. David murdered, committed adultery, and tried to cover it up. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts because he knows we would sin. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, we stumble in many ways. And of course, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the Christian life is not one of sinlessness. It's the one of never giving up repenting and repenting often, confessing our sins, saying, I was wrong, Jesus. God the Father, you know how I failed you. Forgive me. And so we pray for people, not that they would never sin. Well, I guess that is good. Like it's good to say, you know, keep this person from this temptation. But greater than that is the desire to say, Lord, establish their hearts blameless in holiness. Lord, keep them from that sin, but 
if and when they do stumble and sin, Lord, allow them to find themselves blameless. Allow them to find themselves forgiven in you, just as we need, right? We need to be blameless because our blame has been given to Christ and we are forgiven. Summarizing just the three parts of his prayer here, we pray for our current needs, we pray for growing love, and we pray for faithfulness all the way till the end. And we do this because prayer does work. Prayer works, doesn't it? And we need to be reminded of that sometimes. Famously, Charles Spurgeon, who had one of the most impressive churches of his time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there was great crowds, and he had great ministries all over the world, people reading his sermons, and he had um, you know, uh, all kinds of things. He had a pastor's college. He had orphanages. He was successful. He had politicians coming to his church. He had politicians inviting him in. And one day, a friend came to him, and he asked him a very important question. He's like, Charles, how do you keep people interested for years on end hearing you preach? Because let's be honest, you hear us preach sometimes, sometimes we get boring. <laughs> uh, like, or, or, or sometimes it's like, well, I've heard that before. Like, how do you keep people interested? And you could think of all the ways Spurgeon might respond. He's like, ah, yes, I, I spend much time in my study. I come up with all the best stories. Or, you know, I, I have to keep it fresh by coming up with new ideas. I, I, have, I have slides. That's how we keep people interested, right? You know what he did? He's like, oh, it's owing to my very special heating apparatus I have downstairs. Come, I will show it to you. And he took his friend down into the basement through a very large door, and he quietly opens it, and he points to a group of people and says, there is my heating apparatus. It was an evening prayer group right before the evening service who were calling upon God to grant blessings to the ministry. And Paul's saying, what keeps the heat of this church going? What keeps people interested? It's that group of people praying. And that is why we pray. That is why we pray, not just for salvation, though that is good. We pray for the church. We pray for the church and their needs, we pray for the church to grow in love, and we pray for the church to be faithful in the end, and the Lord will use it. Let me pray. Oh God, it's a simple prayer. We pray for you to enable us to pray well, that we might believe that it does have an effect on people's lives. So Lord, grow us. As we have many needs, Lord, and we have concerns, that we bring those to you, but Lord, allow us to love one another better, true love, a love that acts. And Lord, may this church continue to be here until you return. Lord, if you tarry for a while, may you continue to make us faithful and make the next generation and next generation faithful. Lord, we want these children and other children to be here in generations to come. Lord, allow that. The praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.